3 and verse 21 is found on page 859 in the Pew Bible in front of you. While you're finding your way there, I would like to request your prayer uh, during this week. Uh, we are sending from Hamilton Baptist Church. I think it's about six of us are going to Tijuana, Mexico on a, a short week-long mission trip in support of Dave and Debbie Tazelar and their ministry there over 20 years. And we are going there to help support the, the physical uh, structure, the church building and, and the buildings there. And one particular family lives in one of those buildings and is in uh, a bit of disrepair. And we're also going to encourage Dave and Debbie, and I, I trust that they could use that. And so we appreciate your prayers towards that effect. So we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3 and the, verse 21. Hear now the word of God. And when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Mahath, the son of Matthias, the son of Simon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanna, Joannan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Jatil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadon, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed. The son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nishon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surig, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we look forward to hearing from you through it. And this is somewhat of, at least part of this, an obscure text for us, and yet we believe all scripture is divinely given, breathed out by God. And so help us to profit from it today for your glory and our great gain, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On December 2nd in 1804, a short, balding man from Corsica stood before Pope Pius VII in the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, France. It was the day of his coronation. He came to this point in his career through military brilliance. 
Uh, unlike uh, a military, a military mind unlike the world had seen for centuries, if not millennia, he terrified and manipulated both his enemies and his friends. The French Senate acclaimed him unanimously and invited, or if you will, really commanded the Pope to come crown their emperor. He would enter the cathedral with a congregation standing in awe as he strode down the aisle in shimmering robes towards the awaiting Pope. At the supreme moment when Pope Pius reached for the crown to place it upon his head, he arrogantly waved off the Pope and grabbed the crown himself, turned his back to the Pope, facing the congregation, and crowned himself. Such was the coronation of Napoleon Bonaparte, the emperor of France. 1,800 years prior to that event, on a muddy riverbank in Palestine, an unknown man stood before John the baptizer, surrounded by repentant sinners. It was nothing unusual for people to come to John to be baptized uh, It's a sign that they're repenting of their sin, seeking forgiveness. Nothing unusual about it at all. Thousands had done it. And yet something unusual took place that day when John looked to this man and was stunned to find him there in the Jordan River. He interrupted his baptismal service and said to this man, I can't baptize you. In fact, you must baptize me. No one had ever heard John speak this way, this fiery preacher calling for repentance and warning of judgment. And yet John finally consented and baptized Jesus of Nazareth, inaugurating his ministry, if you will, publicly coronating him as the King of Kings and the promised Messiah. You see the difference where Napoleon is inaugurated with arrogance and greed, Jesus rather with humility and compassion. The last time we were in Luke's gospel, we we learned a great deal about Jesus from John the baptizer. Remember when he spoke of uh, the greatness of Jesus, the superiority of Christ to himself. Today in the text we have before us, we get to hear from the Father speaking from heaven. Also testifying to the wonder of Jesus, to his divine sonship. It is an incredibly important event in the life of Jesus. In fact, it's so important that it is the baptism of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. Now, you know not all four record his birth. Only two tell us how he was born. But all four will tell us of his baptism. It is one of the three times in the life of Jesus in which God speaks directly from heaven, uh, uh, um, evidently not willing to let a prophet speak for him. He would have to speak for himself. Moreover, it is uh, perhaps one of the most beautiful picture of the triune nature of God, the Trinity, as we see the Son baptized and the Father proclaim and the Spirit descend upon him. I believe it is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry upon this earth. It is a call from God himself to begin the work in which he has given him, begin the mission. It is a recognition that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. In fact, I find it interesting the way Luke orders this. I don't know if you note this. Look look in verse 20. In verse 20, it tells us that added this to them all, this is the crimes of Herod, he locked, that's Herod, locked up John in prison. And so in verse 20, Luke tells us that John is locked in prison. And then in verse 21, 
he tells us that Jesus was baptized, of course, at the hands of John. And so why does, why does Luke order it that way? Why does Luke put John in prison uh, in, in the order of his gospel prior to John baptizing Jesus? And I wonder if what Luke is trying to do is trying to get rid of John, if you will. That John's work is done. John pointing to the Messiah, that work has been completed. And he wants now to get John out of the way, where the focus can now be completely upon Christ as something new and something wonderful is beginning. In fact, Jesus would contrast the time of John with his own time. As if John was the time of the old and Christ has brought the time of the new. Look over in Luke chapter 16. It's an interesting passage in which Jesus speaks of John the baptizer in Luke chapter 16 and drawing this contrast between John's ministry and his own. He says in Luke 16 verse 16, The law and the prophets were until John... You see that? The old covenant was all the way up to John. Since then, since that point, since John, the good news of the kingdom is preached. And so Jesus says, up to John we had the old covenant. And now that the king is here, the kingdom of God is being proclaimed. Something new has begun. The kingdom of God has been initiated. In fact, I think Jesus alludes to something similar in Luke chapter 7. Again, speaking of John and contrasting John with his ministry in Luke 7 and verse 28. Jesus says, a famous verse you are well aware with, well aware of, I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John, right? So John is the greatest, he says, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom is greater than he. Right? So of all the old covenant, of all of the, the old times, John was the best, but now the new has come, and even the least in the new is greater than the best in the old. And I think what we have here in the baptism, in in Luke chapter 3, the way Luke is ordering this, he says, here's the new start. The new has come. The, The old is passing. Jesus is being commissioned. He's being inaugurated. He is being coronated. Of course, it's not changing who Jesus is. It's simply a recognition of who he is. It's God calling him to begin to exercise the authority that he has always had. And so let's this morning consider the start of Jesus' ministry. In fact, I think Luke really unfolds it in four different ways. We see, first of all, Jesus' acceptance. Secondly, Jesus' anointing. Thirdly, Jesus' approval. And fourthly, Jesus' ancestry. So consider, first of all, with me, Jesus' acceptance. Verse 21 tells us, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. Stop there for a moment. We see Jesus going down to be baptized. Now, you notice that Luke will not emphasize this. He almost says, he almost wants to tell us the events that accompany the baptism. When Jesus was baptized, these things happened, and these are the things I want you to know about. But the other gospel writers really begin to unfold um, the the importance and the meaning of the baptism in which uh, Jesus was participating in. And you can picture, I think, in your mind's eye, John down there in the Jordan River and lines of people um, lining up to be baptized by him after he preached. And they're being baptized to repent of their sin. You notice Luke 3 and verse 3 tells us, And he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so all these people are lining up, thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them, some scholars say, to be baptized in order to repent of their sin. And who gets in line? Well, Jesus. Well, Jesus is kind of in the wrong line, isn't he? Because this is the line for sinners. This is the line to, to, to repent of sin. Was Jesus a sinner? 
Well, no. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews chapter 4 announces, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so the question is, I think, perhaps in my mind, maybe in yours, is why was Jesus baptized? And if that question occurs to you, you're not alone, because it occurred to John as well. John was very confused to see Jesus in the water. And we know in John's, excuse me, in Matthew's gospel, the Bible tells us in chapter 3 and verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? You see, John tried to stop Jesus. There's no need for him to be baptized. There's no repentance. There's no forgiveness of sins that he needs to seek. But Jesus would answer John's uh, 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 um, caution by saying, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And so Jesus says, John, I need to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, to be perfectly honest, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Um, I, I think we understand that righteousness is to, to do what God says is right. To be righteous is to follow God and to obey God and to do what God has said. And evidently, God has told Jesus he needs to go in the water and be baptized. And, and Jesus says, I'm going to be on this mission. I'm accepting God's mission. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. And so he is fulfilling righteousness. He is obeying God. And I think the reason why God wants Jesus in the water is not because he's a sinner, but because he needs to identify with sinners. He's not not coming to confess sin. He's not coming to repent. He's coming to be identified with those who have. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, John, I I need you to baptize me. And I, I know I'm not a sinner, but I am here to take the place of sinners. I'm here to be identified with sinners. As Isaiah said, I'm here to be numbered among the transgressors. He, of course, will take the place of sinners as he died upon the cross. I think he is in very much in the same way identifying with sinners in his baptism. The, the baptism is Jesus' declaration to say, I am here for you. I am here to be your substitute. And the baptism begins his ministry and the, the cross will end his ministry. I think his choice, therefore, to be baptized is a choice to lead himself all the way to the cross. Where there, you will see what appears to most people, just another sinner dying. And in reality, it is not a sinful man. When we see the Lord being baptized, I think he's saying, I've come for you. I've come to, to live my life for you and to accumulate righteousness that I might give to you. I've come to die for you. He accepts his mission. Of course, as we mentioned, that Luke's focus is not on the baptism. The focus is on the events accompanying the baptism. And when Jesus comes out of the water, he looks up and he sees the heavens opened, as you note, verse 21. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. I love how Mark puts it when he says, and Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. You see, there is a spiritual world. 
There's a veil in between that world and our physical world that is usually not penetrated, but occasionally God will move through it. He'll do so in the life of Daniel and Ezekiel and Stephen. And of course, here with Jesus, when the invisible God makes himself visible, theologians call that a theophany, that God is appearing. And here God tears that veil apart, almost as if two great hands rip the sky apart and we get a glimpse of the majesty of heaven as Jesus is secondly anointed. You see, the second uh, reality that, that Luke wants us to show us in the inauguration of Jesus is his anointing. You note verse 22, the Bible tells us, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in, in bodily form like a dove. And so here comes the Holy Spirit from heaven in order to anoint Jesus. In fact, two things are happening here in in this anointing. The first is that we see Jesus receiving this private empowering for ministry. The Holy Spirit is coming upon Jesus in order to equip him and empower him to live the life that he needs to live. In fact, as we we read the Old Testament, we know that, that when men would become kings, they would be anointed with oil. And the oil would be a symbol of the Holy Spirit descending upon them, the presence of the Holy Spirit. For instance, when Saul first became king, the first king of Israel, he was anointed with oil. And, and after the anointing, the, uh, uh, Samuel said, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and turn you into another man. Or in the occasion of David in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13, the Bible says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You see, a king was anointed with oil to show that the Spirit had come to rest upon him, to guide him and to lead him in this, this great office in which he has been given. And here's Christ, he of course not being anointed with oil, but the actual presence of the Holy Spirit is coming on him. He is being saturated in the Spirit, that everything from this point on he is going to do in the power of the Spirit. And Luke is going to emphasize how Jesus lived in the Spirit-filled life. He lived under the power of the Spirit. In fact, note Luke 4.1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And verse 14. And Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Luke is going to tell us that Jesus worshiped by the Spirit. He preached by the Spirit. He did miracles by the Spirit. The Bible explains that by the Holy Spirit, he offered himself on the cross, Hebrews 9. It also tells us by the, by, by the Spirit, he was raised from the dead, Romans chapter 1. Acts chapter 10 says God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. You see, the ministry in which Christ faced was done under the power of the Holy Spirit. He relied upon the Holy Spirit. He needed the Holy Spirit when he faced temptation from the devil or backbreaking ministry or faced opposition and persecution or faced torture and death. He needed the Holy Spirit. I think it's important for us to see this because there's a lot of confusion these days about what it means to have the Spirit-filled life. I think there's a lot of confusion what it means to be baptized by the Spirit and under the influence of the Spirit. And, and you turn on the television and you see all crazy things happening and, and people are barking and laughing and hitting each other on the heads and the Holy Spirit keeps getting blamed for it. Right? And it, it's, it's crazy. And I want you to understand, you want to know what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, what it looks like. You want to know what it looks like to live the Spirit-filled life, to be under the guidance of the Spirit, to, to be influenced by the Spirit. It looks like Jesus. 
whatever it's going to look like, it's going to look like Jesus. Because Jesus lived under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He was baptized with the Spirit. He was guided by the Spirit. In fact, He would not only receive the Spirit, but He will give the Spirit to you. In fact, that's exactly what John said in verse 16. Remember, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So not only does Jesus receive the Spirit, Jesus is willing to give the Spirit, give to uh, those who would follow Him that we too might have the Spirit in order to serve God and to preach the Word and to help the poor and love others and bear fruit and leave legacy and glorify God. How are we going to do that, church? How are we going to love our enemies and, and, and give and sacrifice and glorify? How in the world can you and I do that if not by the Spirit of God? We have one hope and one hope only. And as God comes in us and empowers us both with His great power in order to live the life in which God has called us to live. It is only by the Spirit of God. And therefore you and I should pray for God's Spirit. We should pray that God would fill us with His Spirit. Now, it is not that we don't have the Spirit. Clearly, we have the Spirit when we are born again. But I invite you to turn quickly to Luke chapter 11. In fact, while you're going to Luke 11, I want to note something here in Luke chapter 3. Luke tells us something very interesting about Jesus' baptism. In Luke 3, verse 21, again, it says, Jesus, when Jesus also had been baptized, and Luke adds this little phrase, and was praying, the heavens opened. Now, Luke is, Luke's about to tell us everything that happened happened when Jesus was baptized and when he was praying. L- Luke alone will, tells us that Jesus was praying on his baptism. And by the way, you read Luke's gospel and, and you're going to see Jesus on fire for prayer. I mean, it is everywhere. He prayed in his baptism. He prays for over the apostles. He prays in the transfiguration, prays in Gethsemane, prays on the cross. Luke will tell us he often withdraws to the wilderness to pray. He spent whole nights in prayer. He depended upon prayer. And so here he's praying in his baptism. What's he praying for? Now, we have no idea, of course. Luke doesn't tell us. But I do find it interesting here in Luke chapter 11 when the apostles asked Jesus to teach them to pray and they keep seeing Jesus praying and praying and praying and they don't have uh, they don't have an understanding of prayer like that and they don't they don't live like that and they say well will you teach us to pray and Jesus begins to unfold to them how it is that we should pray and what the life of prayer looks like and he gets to chapter uh, chapter 11 verse 11 and he says what father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead give him uh, instead of a fish give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give, you see it, the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus is saying, you evil fathers are inclined to be kind and good to your children, to give them good things. How much more will your Father in Heaven give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? I wonder, do you ask? Do you call out for God to let the Spirit come upon you? 
that you might have more of his leadership and giftedness and power and fruitfulness and fullness. Jesus here was praying in Luke chapter 3. God anoints him and, and, and sends the Spirit. Perhaps, perhaps he was praying for the Spirit himself. Perhaps he was calling for Father to send the Spirit that he might be empowered for the ministry in which the Father had given him. Well, the Holy Spirit would come upon him and would do so, not just privately, by the way, to empower him, but would also do so publicly. You notice how Luke puts it. In fact, it's very similar in all the, the baptism accounts that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And so this was not simply a private experience. It was a public display. And so you and I have received the Spirit, but no one got to see that happen, right? We didn't watch the Spirit descend upon you. But Jesus is unique. Everybody got to see the Spirit come upon him. The Spirit chose to take a, a bodily form in order that people might understand who Jesus is. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1 and verse 32, the Bible says, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so John evidently saying, I'm not quite sure who the Messiah is. I think I know, but, but I'm, I may be wrong. And God says, okay, you want to know who the Messiah is? You want to know who the Son of God is? You watch. And you, when you see the Holy Spirit come upon him and you see him re, the Holy Spirit remain upon him, then you know that is the Messiah. Of course, the word Messiah simply means anointed one, the anointed one. And so what better sign to identify Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, than being anointed from heaven. Isaiah 11 and verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus is being identified as the Messiah by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And this is why he comes in bodily form. Interestingly enough, he chooses a, a, a fascinating bodily form, right? Because he comes like a dove. Now, let's be clear that the Holy Spirit is not a dove and doesn't come as a dove, right? All the Gospels are very uh, specific. He comes like a dove. So he, it looks similar to a dove, but he, he is not a dove. Now, the question is why? Why does the Holy Spirit choose this form? Nowhere else in Scripture is there ever even the remotest connection between the Holy Spirit and a dove, and so why now does he choose this form? Many people have speculated that it might be because the Holy Spirit is pure, right? After all, he is the Holy Spirit. Um, and, the, and we know that doves were used as sacrifices, and so they were pure. Others uh, perhaps suggest that the Holy Spirit brings peace. And they understand the dove as a symbol of peace from when Noah sent out the dove to see if God's wrath had ended, if there was now peace between God and man. And either of those cases might, might be true. But there is one time, one place in which Jesus actually uses the word dove in his teaching. It's found in Matthew's gospel in chapter 10. Of course, Matthew will tell us that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, just as Luke will. And Jesus will say in Matthew 10, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And so evidently in Jesus' mind, a dove is innocent. The dove is meek. You notice the Holy Spirit didn't choose the form of a... So he has to come from the sky to the earth. So you think, well, he's going to be a bird of some sort, right? Well, he didn't come as a hawk or an eagle 
Wouldn't that have been cool, right? Jesus coming out of the water and this big massive eagle flying down there and Jesus holds out his arm and just lands there. I mean, that would have been something, wouldn't it? Right? But, it, but the Holy Spirit didn't choose to come with something fierce. He chose to come with something without talent, something that does not seek out a prey, something that is not violent. As Jesus being coronated as King of Kings, I think we're told in some sense how it is he will build his kingdom and it will not be with a sword, but it will be with meekness. It will be with love and compassion. I think we're on the right track for the Bible tells us in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now listen to what God says through the prophet. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So he will be a king. He will bring justice. But then he goes on and says, He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not quench. So the king will bring justice but he will not do so in such a way that tramples upon the broken and smolders the, the faint of heart. He will not come with violence or, or overwhelming um, uh, strength. He will not come with a sword. His, his kingdom will not be hawk-like. It will be dove-like. It will be innocence and meekness. He has a dove-like spirit in him that he wants to bind up the broken. He wants to fan the flame um, in the smoldering. I don't, I don't know if there are any in this room today that maybe you come here today and you, you are beat up and you're broken. Maybe there's some here that I just, just feel like I'm, I'm just hanging on. I, I, am, I am smoldering. I mean, I am just holding on with my last strength. Please understand that though Christ is a king, he doesn't come to trample upon the weak. He comes to find them, that he might find the broken and mend them, that he might find those who are hanging on and supply his strength to them. That's the kind of king he will be. That's the kind of anointed Messiah he is, a king that comes in innocence and tenderness and love. That's who he is. As he is anointed, he is anointed by the Holy Spirit in this beautiful form that, that descends from heaven. In fact, that's not the only thing that we, we discover from heaven. We also know that the Father speaks from heaven. For verse 22 reads on, And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased, God says to Jesus. And you notice that he says these words to Jesus. Right, so the visible Holy Spirit confirmed to others who he was. But the words from heaven are not for others. They're for Christ himself. He's not speaking about Jesus. He doesn't say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He will say almost that exact thing at the transfiguration of Jesus in Luke 9. But here in Luke 3, he's speaking to Jesus. The father speaking to his son. As we see, thirdly, Jesus' approval. That God the Father is encouraging His Son and does so in three ways. He first begins with Jesus' identity and then His affection and finally His pleasure. As we see Jesus' approval. Notice God identifies Jesus by saying, You are my Son. He is the Son of God. He is the fully divine, eternally begotten Son of God. He is therefore not a simply a compassionate teacher or a moral example or a, a revolutionary. 
He is God's son. And God says to him, you are my son. Now, my question is, why did Jesus need to hear that? Why, why does Jesus need to hear from the Father, you're my son? In fact, do you remember the last event that we saw of Jesus in Luke's gospel? Right? We took a little interlude here with John, but back in Luke chapter 2, remember Jesus was 12 years old and Mary comes to Jesus and says to him after he's been lost for three days, why are you treating your father and I like this? Why have you abandoned your father and I? And Jesus says, mom, I'm with my father. What are you talking about? I'm in my father's house. I'm with him. And Jesus at age 12 receives this, this understanding of who he is and who God is. And God is his father. And, and this is confirmed in, in his heart. But he gets to this age of 30 and he's baptized. And the father just wants to confirm what, what Jesus has already learned. He wants to hear it from himself. You are my son. You're my son. Come and follow me. Come and, come and leave your family and come follow me, son. There's a power there. I, it's one of my favorite words, son. I, I love being a dad, as you may know, and, and I, I, I just love that word, son. I call my boy son all the time. Come on over here, son. I, I, I love you, son. Receive your spanking, son. Right? I just love that. I, I love the word son. There's so much power and intimacy there. I love the fact that the Father, in the Trinity, there is one human relationship, and it's father to son, and God has invited me into a parallel relationship, and I, I couldn't think of a greater privilege. I am just so pleased with that, and I just love that word, son. You're my son as he identifies Jesus. Secondly, you see the father's affection. He doesn't just say, you are my son. He says, you are my beloved son. And we, we might put it this way. I love you, son. For the, speaks from heaven. His expression of joy and delight in him. The father loves Jesus. He loves the son. By the way, if I can say by just kind of a footnote, we should get rid of the silly kind of ideas that permeate American Christianity that says God created us because he was lonely. And that God is a loving God and therefore he needed something to pour out his love upon and whammo, you and I exist. No, God has his triune. There are three persons in one God and they are eternally in love with one another, expressing their love for one another. And the father has loved the son from the, from the beginning, from eternity. And he just wants to affirm that right here. I love you, son. Now, why does Jesus need to hear that? Doesn't he know his father loves him? Of course he does. Still nice to hear, isn't it? There's power in that, isn't there? I think fathers here, mothers, tell your children you love them. Well, they already know that. I know they know that. But it's good to hear. It was good for Jesus to hear from God, his father, he loves them. Thirdly note, the father's pleasure. He says, with you, I am well pleased. I am utterly satisfied. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus hasn't done much, has he? Right? Because he hasn't done any teaching. He hasn't done any miracles. He hasn't cast out any demons. He hasn't, hasn't denied himself. He hasn't died on the cross. He hasn't done any ministry. And Father says, I'm pleased with you. I'm satisfied with you. He's spent the last 30 years as kind of the Mr. Fix-It in the village. Right? Loving his mom, doing his work. And God says, I'm just pleased with you. I'm satisfied with you. It didn't wait till Jesus did all his wonder works and, and his miracles. And then he says, okay, now I'm pleased with you. He's pleased with me at the very beginning. I think he's pleased with Jesus' commitment to follow him as is being displayed in his baptism, his submission to the Father. 
He's pleased with him. As we even started our service this morning, we heard from Isaiah, God says, this is my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Now, why does Jesus need to hear that his father is pleased with him? Well, I, I, I don't know. I just relate to human terms. I think every son wants to hear from their father. I'm pleased with you, son. I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with the life you're living. I'm proud of the, the man you become. I'm, I'm pleased with you, honey. I'm, I'm pl- proud of your life, sweetheart. I think daughters and sons, they, they, they thrive off that, don't they? And I think it's no less for Jesus. He, want, he wants to hear his father's approval, and he gets his father's approval, his father's pleasure. He is the beloved son with whom his father is pleased. Now, here's the extraordinary thing that I want to apply to your hearts today. Because everything that is said about Jesus here in Luke 3.22 is said about you if you are in Christ. These words are not just for Christ. They are for you, Christian, if you find yourself in Jesus. Jesus, in fact, seems to spend his whole ministry trying to get people into the relationship with God that he has, that you too can become sons and daughters of God. In fact, Paul will pick up on that in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4. He will unfound what it means to be a child of God. For instance, in Galatians 4 and verse 4, the Bible says God sent forth his son, born under a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Why? Why does he die? Why does he raise from the dead? Why is he redeeming me? Bible tells us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And as and because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. You see, Jesus Christ takes our place as a sinner that you and I might take his place as a son and a daughter of God. That's his ministry. That's why he has come. And as with the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus to communicate this to him, to remind him of this, so the Spirit has come into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. So get this, Jesus does all the work to make you a son, to make you a daughter, but God is so interested in you getting to understand this that it is not enough for God to simply make you his son or his daughter. He needs to make sure you are aware that you are his son and his daughter. And so Jesus makes you a child of God and the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and begins to speak deep into your heart, reminding you, you are God's son. You are God's daughter. You are a son of God through Christ, giving us this clear, direct testimony in our heart by which we cry out to the God of the heavens, Abba, Daddy, Father. He is our Father. We have been made children of God. Do you know what that means? Let me tell you three things that means that, that I just received, by the way, from Pastor Tim Keller, who could teach this much better than I can. But it means you have received honor. You are a, in a position of honor as a son of God. Your son would receive his father's estate, would receive his father's rank, would receive his father's position, would receive his father's status. And you have received that in, through Christ. You've received your heirs. Now, and I know that Paul, he calls us all sons of God. And we live in the 21st century America and we think, well, that's a little insensitive. Right? Why aren't we sons and daughters? Is, is Paul a chauvinist? Right? And many people have accused Paul of being a chauvinist. But please understand that in this day, women did not inherit. Women were not heirs. Women did not receive their father's status, rank, and position. 
Only sons do. And Paul comes along and begins to point out that he says, Hey, women, you too are sons of God. In other words, you too receive the Father's status and position and rank. You too are heirs. He's not being chauvinist. He's being incredibly radical as he's inviting all of God's children into this position of honor. And so I don't, I want us to be clear that Paul is not dismissing women. He's actually elevating women. And by the way, let's not mess with the Bible's metaphors. We, we have this tendency to, to make the Bible culturally sensitive. And you know what also, we're also not only called sons of God, we're also all called the bride of Christ, which I find a little uncomfortable, right? <laughs> I'm not going to change it. Right? We're all sheep, the Bible tells us. We need all these metaphors. Bring them together and give us a robust understanding of who we are in Christ. And you and I have been given as sons of God this incredible honor as God's sons. Secondly, we have access. As sons of God, we have access to God. He says, whom I love. I love you as a son. I love you as a daughter. Almost every morning I wake up and I... I turn over uh, to greet my wife, and there is somebody else in my bed. Now, my wife is still in my bed, so let's not get carried away. But there's usually a small, often snotty face, you know, on my pillow. And sometimes there's three or four just kind of lined up. And and my children, before Daddy and Mommy had gotten up, they they have come and crawled into our bed and crawled under our covers in a very kind of intimate personal space and, and they have invited themselves into that position. Now, they, they, they didn't stand at the side of my bed and say, excuse me, Father, would it be okay if I crawled into bed with you and cuddled? They, they didn't set up an appointment. They didn't rearrange this the night before. They did not come with letters of recommendation. Right? They, just, they just came and crawled and got right next to me. Because they're my children. Because they have access to their Father. You see, Jesus Christ has come to give us access to the Father in heaven. That we can crawl right up into His lap. God of the heavens, the creator of all things, we have this incredible access to you. You see, Jesus offers us a relationship with God that is on a completely different planet than any other of these false religions around this world. That He, he loves you. Not like a creator loves his creation, not, not, not like a master loves his slaves, but like a father loves his son. And Jesus has died to bring us into the Father's love. We have access. Thirdly, we have safety. You see, God not only says to Jesus, with you I am well pleased, he says that to us. And you need to hear that this morning. You need to hear God speaking to you through his word. With you I am pleased. I am utterly satisfied with you. I, I think a, a parent's love for a child is, is some of the most remarkable thing in which God has created. It is very strange. It is totally unconditional. When people turn their back upon you and, and, and they do nasty things to you, eventually you just let them go away. Um, but there is something almost eternal that holds a, a father to a child and a child to a father. In fact, the, the more they kind of disobey, the, the more you kind of your heart goes out for them at times. And it has been said that a the parent will be only as happy as their least happy child. And I think there is truth there. There's this unconditional, instant, powerful love that a parent has for a child. I think the, the reason that's there is that we are made in God's image. 
and that God loves his children. If we are like that, what is our father like that? He is totally committed to us. He is well pleased with us. He is utterly satisfied with us. And I want you to understand this is not religion, therefore. It's not work really hard, try your best, do a bunch of stuff, and you get to the end and you hope that God might say, you know, yeah, I've looked at it all and I decided I'm pleased with you. I looked at it and and I'm satisfied with what you have done. It's not that at all. We begin with his pleasure. We begin with his love. That's where we start adopted into his family. We begin with him as father. And he says to you, I'm your father and you are mine. I love you. I'm pleased with you. I'm satisfied with you. Now, there are some people who think, well, how can that be? I mean, how can God be satisfied with me, with the life I've lived, and the thoughts I think, and, and that when I get short with my children, or, or, or when, I, when I lie, or when I have a greedy heart, how, how can He be pleased with me? He can't be pleased with me. So just make me your servant. I just want to be your servant. But I, I deserve rejection. I can't be your son. I can't be your daughter. They, they don't understand how they have this relationship. And I'll tell you, you will never believe that you are a child of God. Let me put it this way. You will never believe that God is well pleased with you as long as you keep looking at yourself. You will never understand sonship until you understand sacrifice. And Christ has paid your debt. He has paid your rejection. And, and, and you come to him and say, I'm not worthy to be your son or daughter. I, I deserve rejection. And Christ says, I know, I know. That's why I died. Don't you get it? Now stop it and sit at the table like my brother and sister with me. It's been paid for. You've become a son. You've become a daughter. It is stunning that God would say to me, Stephen, I am well pleased with you. That's what he says to you through grace in Christ. I think this ought to change the way we live. I think this ought to give us this confidence. I mean, who cares what other people think, right? Who cares? The Father is pleased with me. It ought to at the same time produce meekness in us, right? I commit to God when I'm wrong because His pleasure is not dependent upon my works or my behavior. I commit to myself. I commit to you because I'm safe. I have nothing to fear. I have this freedom with God. I have this assurance that I could go into a demanding life. I could have assurance that I could face tomorrow when I don't know how I'm going to get through tomorrow and do the things I'm called to do and be the person I'm supposed to be. I don't know how I'm going to to do that. But that's okay because I'm God's son. He's pleased with me. His spirit lives with me. He's satisfied with me in Christ. John Wesley was an amazing man in college. He started a holy club with Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, and they would meet every day for hours to memorize Scripture, to pray, and to read the Bible. He would work in orphanages, visit prisons. He would tutor poor children. He had this incredibly devoted life to God, did more works than, than you and I could, could imagine, and yet his faith was cold. And his relationship with God was hard until one day everything changed for John Wesley. And he looked back in all the work that he had accomplished for God. And he said, I always believed in God. 
But I had the faith of a servant. Now I have the faith of a son. And everything changed for him. I tell you this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, you are God's son and he is pleased with you in Christ. Live now a life that reflects that. We have God's approval as Christ did. Let's lastly consider Christ's ancestry. We have here before us from verses 23 through verse 38, uh, the ancestry of Jesus. It is kind of like the Hebrew phone book here. And uh, I really thought about spending a whole sermon on that text. Uh, but I love you, and so I'll just spend a couple minutes, right? There are 77 names here, seven groups, excuse me, 11 groups of seven names. 38, which are unique, are only found in Luke's gospel. Most I cannot pronounce. Um, we have these names here, I think, for an important reason. Sometimes we read these genealogies in the Bible and we say, well, why are these names here? And it's a very American question. It's a very Western question. You see, the Jews would cherish these genealogies. They would trace their ancestry all the way back to the 12 tribes of Israel. They would live on ancestral land. It was very important to them and to who they were. Who you were was largely whom you came from. Even Paul, remember Paul says, you want to know who I was? I was a tribe of Benjamin. That was his understanding. And this was true not only for the Jews, but it's true for most cultures for most times. Now, America has kind of left the old world and, and it's no longer about we, it's about me, and it's not about us, it's about I, and we have this very strong spirit of independence, but for most of the world, they didn't have that. In fact, I'm not, I think we probably have gone too far in that direction. And so Luke wants to tie Jesus back into a family. You will note, uh, if you do a study, that Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is different than Luke's. There's many different arguments as to why. The most persuasive to me is that Luke is giving us Mary's genealogy, Luke's family from Mary's side, whereas uh, Matthew is giving us Joseph's genealogy. I think Luke would have good reasons to do that, writing to a Gentile audience, and he's more interested in the physical descent of Jesus as opposed to the Jewish legal descent of Jesus. A couple things to note about this genealogy that I find interesting. Verse 23 tells us, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, and I love this little phrase, see that in parentheses, as was supposed, of Joseph. And so he says, you know, Jesus was, we suppose, the son of Joseph. In other words, we know better. We know that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. We know that he was his adopted father. So he acted as a father, but he adopted Jesus. He wasn't his biological father. Now, in these days, children were cast aside quite often, especially if you had something wrong with you. It was called infant exposure, and they would take children who were born with some type of deformity or something wrong or some they just couldn't uh, take care of, and they would take them to a trash dump, and they would just leave the child there to die. And in fact, if you read the church history, the Christians early on began to take these children and begin to adopt them into their families. And one of the reasons the Christian church exploded in the first couple centuries is because of these acts of charity. And people kept saying, why are you adopting these children with all their problems? Why are you saving them? And the Christians would say, well, our God came to this world as Jesus Christ and he was adopted. And so we too believe in adoption. And I know there are a handful of families here that have adopted children. And I know there are a handful of families here that are working, even this time, on adoption. And I can't think of anything more encouraging to tell a child who's adopted. You know, you're just like Jesus. 
He too was adopted. Can you imagine? Our God was adopted. Isn't that extraordinary? And we see Jesus as was supposed the son of Joseph. You also note that Luke tells us that he began his ministry at the age of 30. This would be the kind of the age of full manhood in the Jewish culture. It would be the age you would enter the priesthood. It was the age that Joseph entered Pharaoh's service. The age Ezekiel began his ministry. The age that David started his reign. The age of 30. It's also interesting to note that where Luke places this genealogy. It's somewhat a strange location for it. Right? We're 150 verses into Luke's gospel and all of a sudden he just thrusts this genealogy kind of right there in the middle. And we wonder why. In fact, both Matthew and Mark, they go from Jesus' baptism to Jesus' temptation. But Luke wants to insert the genealogy here. And I think perhaps there's a number of reasons why Luke is doing that. But one reason is that we just heard God speak from heaven saying, you're my beloved son. And therefore the, the divinity of Jesus is affirmed. But we also know that Jesus is not only fully divine, he's fully human. What better way to emphasize his humanity to balance his divinity than a family tree right this is jesus nation this is his tribe this is his family these are the people he came from and they're emphasizing luke is emphasizing the humanity of jesus i came across in my study of this text a story from a Wycliffe missionary who was in papua new guinea and he began to translate the gospel of matthew as you know the gospel of matthew begins with a genealogy and he says i don't want to start in genealogy so he skipped it and he went right to the birth of Jesus and he worked his way over a year throughout the gospel of Matthew and got to the end and then he said well I got to go back and finish it and so he began the genealogy he called some of his tribal helpers to him and he said what's what's your word for begat and so they told him and so he said Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob and and he got about six verses into this and he saw all these villagers begin to get somewhat agitated and got excited and finally they interrupted him and they, they, they said, were these real people? And, and the missionary said, yeah, yeah they're real people. Uh, that, that's what I've been telling you. And they said, this is what we do. We write this down. We thought that these men were just white man stories. Do you really mean to tell us that Abraham was a real man, that Jesus was a real man? He says, yeah. And that night, they gathered the whole village together, and the, the, the village chief opened the Bible and went to Matthew 1, the genealogy, and preached the genealogy. Abraham begat Isaac and, and so forth. And, and the whole village became totally enthralled with this, and it was the key for receiving Christ amongst this village. And Jesus was a real man. You understand? I know we read this thousand years ago, but there was a man named Jesus, a real man who had a mom and a dad, and, and, and onward and onward. He had, came from this family, and Luke wants to drive this home. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect that, so that he might make propitiation for sins for the people. You see, also in this genealogy, many of these names are obscure. We know nothing about them. But there are some very prominent people, aren't there? We see, of course, in David, in verse 31, who God promised would have a son who would take an everlasting kingdom. Judah, in verse 33, who God had promised that his heir would establish an eternal kingdom. Abraham, in verse 34, in which God said to him, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so Luke is clearly showing us that Jesus has the proper roots to be the promised Messiah. But you notice that unlike Matthew, he does not stop with Abraham. He continues. In fact, Abraham there is in verse 34, and he goes on a number of generations until we get to verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus, like Adam, is a son of God, but in a very unique way. 
But it is fascinating to me that Luke takes us all the way to Adam. You see, if Jesus is the son of Adam, you know what that means is he's your cousin, right? You're, you're a blood cousin to Jesus. And so am I. He is our kin. And, and Luke is, is more interested in emphasizing not that Jesus was the, the one to come from Israel, but he's interested in showing us that he's the one to come from Adam. That is, he's come for all of us. That his ethnicity is not as important to Luke, his humanity is. And showing us the wideness of God's plan that Jesus has come for people of every tongue and tribe and nation and people. And he comes to invite us, of course, not to be his cousin. So every man is the cousin of Jesus, but to his brother. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 2 and verse 11, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Isn't that extraordinary? Not ashamed to call us brother. But you will only become his brother if God is your father. In fact, God would adopt you into his family this very moment. And one day we're all going to stand before God, the Bible tells us. And in fact, you know, when we stand before God, uh, God's going God's to open a book. It's going to be a genealogy. And, and he's going to read it. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. The only difference that day is, it, as opposed to today, it won't be boring then. Because he's going to read names and you're going to be listening very intently. And he'll read the names of some of your friends. And he'll read the names of some of your family members. And you'll rejoice to hear that, but you will be listening for your name. And he will read through that entire genealogy, reading the names of all who belong to his family. And then when he's done, he will close the book. And once he closes the book, there is no longer any hope. The good news is that the book's not closed today. It's wide open. He has pen in hand. And he would write your name into the Lamb's Book of Life, adopt you into his family, if you would renounce your rebellion and receive Jesus Christ as your king. The Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I invite you to be saved for all eternity today. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who has come into this world, who accepted the mission you gave him, who was empowered by your spirit, and who was greatly approved by you. Father, my brothers and sisters, we're going to leave this place in a moment. Will you help us to understand through your spirit who lives in us that we live as the sons of God, that we belong to you, that you are pleased with us, and that we might go forth with great confidence and humility, that your spirit might cry powerfully in our hearts that you are our Abba, you are our Father through Jesus. Help us to live like that is true. Help that to change our days, change our life. Help my friend here to receive that great and unimaginable blessing by simply surrendering their life to the one who made them and who loves them beyond measure. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.